Greetings, fellow Who Gazers, and welcome to what is quite possibly the first, and hopefully only, crash episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This is a new podcast, taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. Up until now, this podcast was just me, and we discussed the first three Frederick Muller books from the mid-1960s, and this is our second week on the target line proper, where we'll be for well over 100 more planned episodes. This week is also the first of hopefully many, many guest interviews to give you all a break from the sound of my voice. We are thrilled to have with us this week Stacy Smith question mark. The question mark is part of her name, a prolific writer of Doctor Who nonfiction. And today she's here to discuss with us Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. My basic thesis behind this podcast was that the target books have extraordinary literary merit, especially those written by the titans of the series, Terence Dix, Ian Martyr, many others. Of course, along the way, we'll reach Terence Dix's sometimes maligned late 1970s output when he was churning out six or eight different hundred-page volumes a year. But I'll have some surprising opinions about those books, too, when we get there. But right now, we're at the beginning of Malcolm Hulk's spectacular novelizations career, with a 152-page epic that stands, as did Terence last week with Auton Invasion, as his magnum opus. Unfortunately, on the day that I record this segment, uh, we lost a titan of the Doctor Who novelizations illustrations. I'm talking about Chris Achilleos, and I'm hoping that I pronounce that name correctly, because as many times as I've seen it in print over the years, and that's talking decades, I don't think I've ever heard his name pronounced. He was the cover artist for Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, which we're talking about today, and he passed away today. I never actually met him in person, but I did order directly from him a t-shirt featuring his cover art, or details from his cover art, on Doctor Who and the Dinosaur Invasion, which is quite possibly his signature work out of all the covers he did for the series. And the tributes to him have been pouring in online all day, and they're all heartfelt, and they all talk about how the cover art of Chris Achilleos is a major part of the childhood of so many Doctor Who fans and novelization readers. And it's almost fitting that this very week we have one of his covers up for discussion. I'm very sorry to hear of his passing. I know last year, through the Target Books Facebook group, he actually offered a series of cell phone covers uh, featuring his art, and I desperately wanted to buy one, and for whatever reason, I just never got around to it. And now, unfortunately, I'm afraid it's too late. So, with that in mind, and a heavy heart, let's discuss this week's book. Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, televised as Doctor Who and the Silurians, written by Malcolm Hulk, from a teleplay by Malcolm Hulk, published in January 1974. Back cover blurb. All is not well at the Wenley Moore Underground Atomic Research Station. There are unaccountable losses of power output, nervous breakdowns amongst the staff, and then a death. Unit 
is called in, and the Brigadier is soon joined by Doctor Who and Liz Shaw in a tense and exciting adventure with subterranean reptile men, Silurians, and a 40-foot-high Tyrannosaurus Rex, the biggest, most savage mammal which ever trod the Earth. This is the original text from the original 1974 paperback, Target Edition, which was retained for the 1980s reprints. And this includes numerous exclamation points. The main uh, characters are in capital letters on the back, such as Doctor Who and the word Silurians, and T-Rex is in italics. Pretty captivating stuff. Now, this blog, up until now, has been me reading out lightly edited versions of my original late 2016 and early 2017 blog breakdowns on the first dozen or so Target books. The entry for Doctor Who and the Silurians I would have written in late December 2016, shortly after the results of the U.S. presidential election. In fact, uh, you might say that the blog that I started was largely to distract myself from what was going on in the news. So there are several what were then contemporaneous references to current events, and I'm going to preserve those for this particular episode, which is until we reach our guest interview, a readout of my original blog post breakdown. I started reading the episode one material in the novelization of Doctor Who and the Silurians on a day about six weeks after the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The book was a favorite of mine growing up, but at that point I probably hadn't read it in about 25 years. So this time out, I was rather surprised to find my boy, Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart, endorsing a hard right-wing and newly resurgent nationalist sentiment. The scene. UNIT has been called in to investigate mysterious power losses at the Wenley-Moore Atomic Research Center. Wenley-Moore is a high-profile, government-backed project designed to create cheap and plentiful energy. The project's security officer, Major Barker, is a fierce nationalist. And so, too, it turns out, is the Brigadier. As the Brigadier learns of Wenley-Moore's purpose, Hulk writes the following exchange in the novelization, an exchange which did not appear in his TV scripts four years earlier. That'll show him, said the brigadier. Everyone looked at the brigadier, as though he had said something very silly. Show whom? asked the doctor. The brigadier had to think for a moment. You know, he said, foreign competitors. A discovery like this will make Britain great again. Make Britain great again. I posted this bit on my Facebook page, and of course, the jokes from my Who fandom friends followed soon thereafter. One comment, we're going to build a new Van Allen belt around the earth and make the Silurians pay for it. Another comment, at least make Britain great again as a play on words. Neither the Brigadier nor Major Barker said these things in the TV broadcast. In fact, he's not even Major Barker on TV, he's Major Baker. And while Baker is still irrationally concerned with sabotage at Wenley Moore, Norman Jones plays a much saner, more measured person. Writing in print, four years after the TV story was broadcast, Malcolm Hulk decides to use the novelization to unshackle just about all his characters from the bounds of civility, and Barker is the centerpiece of that approach. In print, 
Barker soon gets off an epic paranoid rant about who he thinks is trying to sabotage the research center. The text commentary to the DVD release makes clear that Major Barker had once been double-crossed after authorizing security clearance to a friend who turned out to be a double agent. This backstory wasn't expressed on TV, but it makes Baker's incorrect beliefs appear rational. Norman Jones plays Baker as polite and civil at all times during episode one on TV. In print, the Barker version of Baker is a lot more unhinged, more Alex Jones than Norman Jones. It's as plain as a pikestaff there's sabotage going on, said Barker, taking the doctor's bait without realizing it. Anyone can see that. I may agree with you, the doctor said, but sabotage by whom? Communists, of course. Major Barker gave his answer, as though it should have been obvious to everyone. Why should communists cause these power losses, said the doctor. They hate England, that's why. Barker started to warm to his subject. They train people to come here to destroy us. England was once the heart of an empire, the greatest empire the world has ever known. But the bankers and the trade unionists have destroyed that great heritage. Now we are alone, backs to the wall, just as we were in 1940. Only there is no Winston Churchill to lead us. The whole world is snapping at us like a pack of hungry wolves. But the day will come, Miss Shaw, when England will rise again. Compare all this with the third doctor himself whom Terence Dix half-jokingly describes on the DVD audio commentary as a guardian-reading liberal, unquote. But the book's major Barker's lunacy is not confined to Make Britain Great Again speeches. In episode one, a near meltdown of the Wenley Moore nuclear reactor is triggered when a young technician named Roberts suffers a mental breakdown of the controls. On TV, the brigadier puts Roberts out of action with a karate chop, because the production team hadn't yet come up with John Pertwee's Venusian karate, and Roberts never returns to duty. In the book, though, it's Barker who intervenes, inadvertently killing Roberts with a pistol butt to the skull. Yikes. All of his brigadier and major Barker business makes Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters an exhilarating read, but also a deeply cynical one from Hulk. And reading the first five chapters of the novelization, all of which is dedicated to the episode one material, that's a good 25% of the book, just on episode one, by the way. You can see just how radically Hulk has changed his own story in all sorts of fascinating ways. In the previous novelization, Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion, released the same month as this one, and you can catch my podcast episode from last week, the new third Doctor and his first assistant, Liz Shaw, have a cordial and mutually respectful working relationship. Dix narrates many scenes from Liz's point of view as she marvels at the doctor's scientific knowledge, technical know-how, or ability to work a room. That's nice. But Malcolm Hulk doesn't do nice. First, he strips away all of Liz's doctorates, then renders her merely as Miss Shaw. In an early scene on TV, Liz uses her charm to persuade the doctor to heed the brigadier's summons to Wenley Moore, a pleasant moment well-loved by the five participants in the DVD audio commentary booth. But in the corresponding moment in the book, Liz first looked down at the doctor's long legs and felt like kicking one. And then, while navigating their way to Wenley Moore, the doctor tries to mansplain her. They roared along, not speaking until the road went along at the foot of the rising ridge of land. In a very determined way, Liz said, It's that track over there. She pointed to a gravel road that led up the hill from the main road. The doctor slowed down, reaching for the map again. Well, better safe than sorry. 
Over there, she screamed. That rough track. I've studied the route thoroughly. The doctor stopped the car, then turned gently to Liz. Do I irritate you? No, doctor, Liz said. You are the most thoughtful and considerate scientist I have ever worked with. He beamed, taking her quite seriously. How very kind of you. He beamed. I hope that our association together will be a long and happy one. Liz closed her eyes to stop herself from screaming again. Yes, doctor, she said quietly. Let's hope it is. Of course, it's not all disharmony and cynicism. The book opens with an illustrated map of Wenley Moor, showing us where the different settings in the story are in relation to each other. All the best children's sci-fi and fantasy books have maps. Later on, Hulk footnotes the word induction to explain its scientific meaning to the kids. And all within the first five chapters alone, we get discourses on the Colacanth, the cave paintings in Lascaux, France, Carl Jung and the Collective Unconscious, as illustrated by the factoid about why dogs run in circles before going to sleep, and the fact that D.E. Hughes discovered radio waves several years before Marconi. In fact, looking back more than 30 years later, it's probably safe to say that I learned more natural science at age 12 from Doctor Who than the cave monsters than I did from school. Although, I have no excuse if I mispronounced any of the scientific words in that uh, previous passage. Revisiting the first few chapters of Cave Monsters was, in short, a terrific experience, even if certain passages proved to be painfully prescient politically 40 years after the book was written. However, you'll be happy to know that I've decided not to unfriend the Brigadier on Facebook over his comments. Gentlemen, my colleagues, Miss Elizabeth Shaw and the Doctor. Dr. Lawrence, director of this establishment. How do you do? number two, Dr. Quinn. Uh, Major Baker, station security officer. Dr. Lawrence, perhaps you'd be good enough to put my colleagues in the picture. Uh, this establishment consists basically of a device for research into the nature of the atom, cyclotron, otherwise known as a proton accelerator. It, uh, it bombards atoms with subatomic particles. Why? We are on the verge of discovering a way to provide cheap, safe atomic energy for virtually every kind of use. We're developing a new kind of nuclear reactor, one that converts nuclear energy directly to electrical power. Yeah, but that's all very well. But what is going wrong? Two things. First, an abnormally high rate of personnel trouble. Nervous breakdowns, absenteeism, accidents. But the really serious problem is the power losses. There have been a certain number of unexplained leakages in the power supplied by the nuclear generator. I am confident we shall find an explanation. You haven't found one yet, Dr. Lawrence. That's why I'm here. Well, it's yes, a highly yes. complex piece of machinery. Naturally, there are problems. Naturally. And you'll notice that the novelization pretty much rewrote that entire segment of on-screen dialogue. On the DVD audio commentary track for episode one of Doctor Who and the Silurians, Terence Dix, bless him, says, in rapid succession, two things that cannot possibly be true at the same time. First, he bemoans the length of the seven-part serial that he and Barry Letts inherited during season seven from the previous production team. It's impossible, he says, to tell a story of that length without unseemly amounts of padding. Now, on the one hand, you really can't blame Dix for thinking this way. He just had to co-write a ten-part story with Hulk the previous season, so certainly would have had a better idea than most just how long is too long. However, on the very next scene in the episode, 
a comic bit of business featuring the Doctor, Luce Shaw, and the Doctor's new sprightly Edwardian roadster named Bessie, Dix adopts a tone of warm nostalgia and laments that this sort of non-plot-based, character-driven scene could never feature in the new series with its 45-minute episode length. So Dix is kind of having it both ways at once here. The seven-part story both is and is not an ideal vehicle for telling a good Doctor Who story. Which brings us back to Malcolm Hulk, the man who actually wrote Doctor Who and the Silurians, his first solo Doctor Who writing credit, after taking a share of the Faceless Ones and the War Games. Hulk is also the man who novelized Silurians as Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters four years later. In the book, Hulk explodes his own original scripts, essentially junking the seven-part structure, and goes on to tell his own tale. Similar character names, same basic plot, but radically different characterization and dialogue, and particularly in the back half of the book, radically different scene structure. Hulk devotes a full quarter of the book to adapting episode one, spends equal amounts of time on episodes two through five, and then rushes through episodes six and seven, which combine to take up just 24 pages out of 152. Hulk is unsentimental about junking the filler dialogue scenes and lengthy action sequences that featured heavily on TV, and replaces them with vivid characterization, the philosophies of his numerous villains of the piece, and witty retorts. For Hulk, as well as Dix, the seven-part story both was and was not the way he wanted to tell this tale. Hulk instead sees his story as a study in villainy. The only decent characters in the piece are the Doctor and Liz, and perhaps base physician Dr. Meredith, a fleeting role that barely registered on TV, but who sticks around longer in the book. Earlier, before the jump, we talked a bit about Major Barker, the novelization's take on Major Baker, who had been a more neutral character on TV. Before the Silurians show up, the first half of the book features two real sets of villains, Barker, and then Wenley Moore Research Center personnel, Miss Dawson and Dr. Quinn. What's remarkable about the middle portions of the book is how much Hulk leaves the regulars out of the picture and tells the story from the successive viewpoints of several different complex bad guys. Miss Dawson is introduced in a chapter called The Traitor as a study in disappointment. Hulk gives her a backstory that the TV episodes never had time for, and it's pretty tragic. She's the dutiful daughter who never developed her own identity until just a little too late in life. In her heart, Hulk writes, Miss Dawson feared the moment when people would stop asking, why don't you get married? And replace it with the dread, why didn't you get married? We learn how Miss Dawson develops a relationship with Dr. Quinn, and then learns that Quinn has met the Silurians and has a plan to exploit them for his own personal gain. He is quite a bit more ruthless in the book than Fulton Mackay played the role on TV. Then keeping to yourself is, she couldn't think of a strong enough word, is criminal. Oh no, I don't think so. Because you see, I shall kill them first, after I have found out all that I want to know. Soon, Quinn shamelessly manipulates Miss Dawson into being his silent accomplice. Hulk writes Miss Dawson is a battered woman, and tells us this from her point of view. The novelizations would not always be this complex, especially in the years to come. But this one little chapter, The Traitor, is a masterclass in characterization. In Hulk's hands, the episode 2 material from TV takes up three chapters of the book, chapters 6, 7, and 8. 
Each of these chapters is told from the point of view of a different villain in the story. Dr. Quinn, Major Barca, and Morka. He's named that in the book, but on TV he's only called the Young Silurian. Episode 3 takes up four chapters, and three of those also come from bad guy POVs. Quinn again, Barker again, and Miss Dawson. While it's clear that Hulk doesn't exactly sympathize with the motives of any of these people, by telling the story as a mosaic from their different viewpoints, we get a much better look at the moral complexities behind the story's driving questions than we would have if Hulk had written it as a straightforward, third-person, omniscient narrative, which is the case for many of the later novelizations. It's Liz Shaw, unfortunately, who suffers the most from this storytelling approach. On TV, Liz is the one who deduces in episode 3 that Quinn has something to hide, but her material in that regard is cut from the book, and it's the Doctor who gets to be the clever one instead, deducing Quinn's villainy from a tire tread and a dropped handkerchief. Liz, in episode 3 on TV, also recognizes that the globe in Dr. Quinn's Wenleymore office has been marked with the outlines of Earth's continents as they looked 200 million years ago. But in the book, Hulk has her as none the wiser, and it's the Doctor who must explain Pangaea and continental drift. We've already talked a bit about Major Barker slash Baker and his xenophobia. In the book, we see real repercussions to his inadvertent murder of Roberts, which again, on TV, he didn't commit, which causes him to be investigated by the local constabulary. News of this investigation causes Barker to flash back to the moment that led to his disgrace from the army, his murder of a surrendering IRA sniper in Londonderry. Hulk spends so much time in Barker's head that you really feel for the man, as narrow-minded and delusional as he is. When he's captured by the Silurians in the book, he cries out that he's ready to die for his country, for England, and St. George. The corresponding moment on TV, without that defiance, is much more pale. Even the doctor, in print, momentarily shows his admiration for Barker. The reptile men went up to Major Barker. You have not eaten your food, one of them said. We shall not offer food again, not until you answer our questions. Then I shall starve to death, shouted the Major. The doctor whispered close to Liz's ear. That's a very brave man, Liz. A fool, but a really brave man. We also learn much more about Dr. Quinn. During the doctor's probing visit to Quinn's cottage in chapter 11, greatly expanded from the corresponding sequence in episode 3 on TV, he learns that Quinn is the son of Dr. Charles Quinn, a pioneering atomic physicist, and that our Dr. Quinn, John on TV but Matthew in the book, really only ever wanted to be a geologist. One didn't argue with my father, Quinn tells the doctor in the book. Hulk again invites us to sympathize with the man who's already told us that he intends to exploit and then kill the Silurians, and who blackmailed Miss Dawson into helping him. In the book, Hulk also rewards Quinn with a death scene, as he's killed by Morka as punishment for keeping the latter in captivity. On TV, the doctor found Quinn already dead. But in the book, Morka kills Quinn in Chapter 12, which Hulk rather sardonically titles Goodbye, Dr. Quinn, and I believe on television it was the Silurian scientist, not Morka, who commits the murder. That's the first half of the book. Of the four bad guys who've been given POV chapters thus far, Barker will continue on for a short while longer, and Morka will become the principal baddie, to whom the next part of this commentary will be dedicated. Quinn has been killed. 
Interestingly, Miss Dawson is present for Morka's killing of Quinn in the book, and Morka allows her to survive the encounter, although he does threaten her with the extermination of all humanity. But she doesn't appear in the book again, and we never learn of her fate. Hulk handled her somewhat similarly on TV, where she was not present for Quinn's death. She appears as a bitter antagonist in episodes 4 and 5, after Quinn is gone, then contracts the Silurian Plague off-screen in Episode 6, and we never do learn if she survived. Book, or TV, Hulk just never has a happy ending in mind for poor Miss Dawson. But you must see, this is a highly developed and overcrowded planet which now belongs to man. This is our planet. We were here before man. We ruled this world millions of years ago. Then why did you stay down here? A small planet was approaching the world. We calculated that it would draw off our atmosphere, destroying all life. We built this place and suspended our lives till the atmosphere should return. A small planet? Yes, of course. But don't you see that small planet was drawn into the Earth's orbit and became the moon? Your catastrophe never happened. One hallmark of a Hulk novelization is that he spends a lot of time on setup and very little time on resolution. That's certainly true here. Hulk places the TV episodes 4 and 6 cliffhangers literally in mid-sentence, which is either a very lazy or a very clever style of writing. Episode 5 ends in mid-chapter. Episodes 6 and 7 take up just a dozen pages each in the 152-page book a far cry from the lavish page count spent on the earlier episodes of the story. And all of this material, episodes 4 through 7, is radically different in the book, compared to TV. One significant change is the way Dr. Quinn leaves the story. On TV, found dead by the Doctor, who then tries to initiate peace talks with the Silurian that killed him. Also on TV, the Doctor tries to conceal the news of Quinn's death, knowing that the humans will overreact and not wanting that news to permanently preempt mankind reaching an agreement with the Silurians. In the book, though, the Doctor learns of Quinn's death only when the rest of us do, later on, before he's ever met a single Silurian. Two humans enter the story after Quinn leaves it. Travis, another base technician, and Masters. No, not a thinly-veiled pseudonym for a goateed space villain, but in this instance, a sympathetic but doomed bureaucrat, as played by Jeffrey Palmer on TV. In the book, though, Masters is a stuffy, permanent undersecretary, and far less sympathetic. Travis, a smirking male on TV, in the book is Miss Travis, whose sole purpose, at first, is to fetch coffee for the visiting Masters. Beginning with the Episode 5 material, Hulk shifts the narrative away from the humans, and begins to tell the story from the Silurians' side. Although he doesn't call them Silurians. On TV, he called them Silurians in this story, and Eocenes in the Sea Devils two years later. Neither term is right, if the Silurians are indeed 65 million years old. In the book, they're just called cave monsters, and the three main monsters are given individual names. Octel, the old Silurian on TV, Morka, the young Silurian, and Kato, the Silurian scientist. On TV, the portrayal of the Silurians hasn't aged that well. They were all men in baggy rubber outfits, and all voiced by the same actor, Peter Halliday. 
the new series has given us a much different spin on what Silurians look and sound like. But in the book, liberated from rubber masks and ring modulators, Hulk gets right to the dramatic essence and focuses on the philosophical rift between Silurians young and old, Morka and Octel. We have cities, said Octel, great domed cities and valleys waiting for us to return. No, said the doctor. This must be hard for you to understand, but there is no trace of your civilization on this planet. The Earth's crust is always moving. You are fortunate that this shelter has not been crushed to pulp by some internal movement of the crust. Octel seemed deeply affected to learn that his civilization had completely vanished. Nothing of us has been found? No, said the doctor. Only some fairly small versions of your animals, the lizard, the crocodile, and the snake. Octel swayed slightly from one side to another, and from the depth of his throat there came a gentle whining sound. The doctor thought this must be the reptile man's way of showing grief. Then a single drop of liquid slid from one of Octel's eyes. The old reptile man was crying. I am very sorry, said the doctor. It must be sad to realize that you are so completely forgotten. And Hulk, the old communist, literally, doesn't miss the chance to engage in some misty-eyed discussion of a Star Trekian present. If your plan is acceptable to the other species, said Octel, it would be understood that we are the superior race. I am sure that the humans could learn to treat you with great respect, said the doctor. But these days, people don't talk about superior and inferior races. Everyone is equal. <laughs> Imagine. Morka is a vicious character on TV, unleashing a plague meant to wipe out the human race, likened in the novelization specifically to the Black Death. Hulk starts off by identifying with Morka in the book. Unlike on TV, here it's Morka as the Silurian wounded by Barker, who then wanders about Wenley Moor. But Hulk also makes Morka an even more vengeful Silurian after his wounding, unleashing the T-Rex on the Brigadier's trapped soldiers, and also influencing a human soldier, Private Robbins, to leap to his death into a bottomless pit. There was a Private Robbins in Episode 5 on TV who briefly fell under the Silurian spell, but he didn't die at Morka's telepathic hands, if you'll pardon the mixed metaphor. Of course, there's also a funny bit of business about the Brigadier trying to salvage telephone cable from a rockfall of the caves to spare an investigation into the waste of public money. Mankind may not have reached equality yet, but Hulk is still right about the peculiar priorities of bureaucracy. Octel's murder by Morka and Kato is also given an added beat of pathos here, as it ends Chapter 15, in a way that most of the TV episode's cliffhangers didn't get to end chapters. Quote, Octel saw the two third eyes before him turn to a brilliant red. The pain raced through his old limbs. For a moment, he remembered himself as a tiny reptile baby breaking out from its egg. Then his mind went blank, and he was dead. Once the infected Major Barker is released by the Silurians and returns to the Wenley Moore Research Center, Hulk increases the tension beyond what we saw on TV by having all of the humans, except Liz, stubbornly refused to believe the doctor about the now-released plague. Hulk also makes it much more obvious that Masters is ill, the point which the characters on TV, including the doctor, were too thick to grasp when Masters escaped to infect the outside world. Although the Brigadier doesn't come out of the story looking fabulous, Hulk portrays him as a narrow-minded soldier, missing the warmth and inquisitiveness that characterize him in the novelization 
the spearhead from space released the same month, Hulk does include one moment of charm for the brig. Quote, Finally, he knew, you could always settle an argument by appealing to the doctor's vanity. It was a little human-like quality that the doctor had. It was one of the reasons why the brigadier liked him. One human character who fares better in print than on TV, and only one, is the center's director, Dr. Lawrence. On TV, he's played with obstinate pinheadedness by Peter Miles. However, he's absent from much of the book, and meets a different end. On TV, he was the one character who refuses to accept that the plague is real, declines his antibiotic injections, and dies horribly in episode 6. But Hulk omits him from that Joe Rogan-esque plot thread, instead stating that the character comes to believe in the Doctor, and gives him a heroic death standing up to the Silurians when they finally invade the research center in Episode 7. While most of the characters who die on TV also die in the book, even if in slightly different ways, one unlikely survivor is Captain Hawkins, who dies on screen in Episode 7 in roughly the same way that Lawrence did in the book. Except, although Hawkins survives the book, he's also demoted to Sergeant, as he was initially scripted to be by Hulk before production began. The on-screen sergeant, named Hart, featured only in episode 4 and 6, and also died on TV, but has no corresponding character in the book. Speaking of character deaths, one of the plague victims on TV is a Mary LeBond station ticket taker, played by production team member Trevor Ray, who ghost-wrote episode 1 of The Ambassadors of Death. Ray saddled Hulk with the unflattering nickname Hack Mulk, as is recounted in the DVD text commentary. Perhaps Ray resented his death scene in the story, or perhaps he resented Hulk finishing off the rewrites for ambassadors in his stead. Terrence Dix, an old friend of Hulk, also briefly cameos on screen in episode 6, but doesn't die. In lieu of the long sequences of Londoners falling victim to the Silurian plague, including Trevor Ray, that comprise much of the running time of episode 6 on TV, Hulk replaces that for the book with two short scenes portraying the death of Masters. One scene takes place on a train, which is put into a siding when the brigadier orders the train halted, but Masters uses his influence to bully his way out. In the second scene, Masters hires a local cabbie named Jock to drive him the 90 minutes to London. Jock, who's only featured in the book, is a delightful pastoral cabbie, who expresses real frustration about London traffic. After Masters dies in his back seat, and Jock desperately tries to flag down the many disinterested passing motorists, Hulk even puts in an observation about how Londoners just don't like talking to other people. Jock, of course, was later awarded his own long-running spin-off, a beloved TV series about a pastoral cabbie who has to ply his trade in the big bad city, and who reluctantly partners up with a known ex-con with a heart of gold. Oh, oh wait, no. Sorry, Jock catches the plague from Masters and also dies. No spin-off. Too bad. It's also notable, when watching episode 7, that after the Doctor has been kidnapped by the Silurians, Liz is able to correctly identify the Doctor's plague antidote formula out of a choice of several crumpled up bits of paper. In the book, although Liz is not quite coded as a scientist, she manages to identify the correct formula by accident. The one illustration of Liz in the book doesn't even resemble Carol and John. If you want to read a more well-rounded portrayal of Liz, you'll have to stick to Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion. On TV, Pertwee resolves the story's climax midway through Episode 7 by bluff. He forces the Silurians to retreat back into their caves by overloading the Wenlimore reactor, 
and then single-handedly reverses the damage. But in the book, the Doctor doesn't know how to reverse the damage, and Hulk gives him a boost from Miss Travis, the coffee-serving technician from the Lawrence-slash-Masters conference. Miss Travis activates the failsafe to avert a meltdown, and then retires from science to go work in a bank. This gives Miss Travis lots of agency, sort of, but doesn't solve the problems inherent in reducing Liz Shaw to a mere cipher. The action continues after the Doctor's bluff on TV. Pertwee returns to the Silurian base and tries to reason with the young Silurian, but is attacked for his troubles and is rescued only by the Brigadier, who pumps the young Silurian with a hail of bullets. It follows that the Brigadier blows up the caves, but under orders from the Ministry of Science and without Liz's prior knowledge. The book ends much more abruptly, with only one short chapter, The Lie, following the reactor business. The Doctor drives off in a huff after the Brigadier blows up the caves, with Liz attempting to support the Brigadier's decision. On TV, the Doctor laments the loss of life. In the book, he laments the loss of scientific knowledge. Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters is a remarkable book, but a quite different experience than the TV episodes. It stands as one of the better written and better remembered novelizations. However, it's a very downbeat and cynical book, and after spending seven days with it, I certainly found myself longing for a lighthearted change of pace. Next time, guess I'm not getting one. The very next book up is a Malcolm Hulk political saga of outer space colonists oppressed by an enormous mining corporation. Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon will not exactly be a laugh-at-minute experience. My copy of the Silurians, or Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, is the 1984 reprint. This 1980s reprint is fairly unique in that it preserves the original Chris Achilleos cover. And remember, I'm recording this on the day that news broke of Chris Achilleos' death. It has the mid-1970s season 11 through 17 logo, Doctor Who in green letters, outlined in black and shaded in white, and The Cave Monsters is written in green ink with Malcolm Hulk in black. The original Chris Achilleos cover from the 1974 release is still on the front, so there is an awesome illustration of John Pertwee with his uh, top button unbuttoned and looking dashing off into the distance. In the 1980s, the house style was to not include past doctors on the book, and I'm sure there's an explanation as to why this reprint of the Cave Monsters did not get a new Doctorless cover, but again, it's by Chris Achilleos, and I'm really glad that I have it. The Doctor has a volcano erupting over one shoulder, and over the other shoulder is Morka, the young Silurian, pretty screen-accurate to TV, and there are sparkles of electricity and wreaths of red smoke. Right over the Doctor's head, and partially blending into the third doctor's uh, white hair is a green Tyrannosaurus Rex, one red eye staring out at the audience. Not quite as vivid as the T-Rex that we'll later be seeing when I get to Doctor Who and the Dinosaur Invasion, but when I was 11 years old, that drawing really appealed to me. The back cover uh, does have the U.S. price, $2.95, but unlike my reprint of Spearhead from Space, or Doctor Who and the Alton Invasion, this one does not list contemporaneous 1984 Target novelization from the Peter Davison era. Inside the book, um, I would say this book is really well-preserved. I've read it 
at least a dozen times since I acquired it in 1985 or 1986, but as with most of my novelizations, it doesn't have a whole lot of wear and tear. I did mark off the cliffhangers uh, in varying ways. For some reason, um, above the prologue, which is chapter one, I wrote episode one in black ink. At some point, I started writing episode one instead of... um, making my first episode marking the first cliffhanger. I'm not sure why I wrote episode one, since it's pretty obvious. Episode two begins on page 45, right opposite the Achilles full-page illustration of a huge T-Rex roaring back with its head over its shoulders and teeth slavering down at the doctor who has the cape flying behind him, which, by the way, that is one heck of an illustration. I love that. Uh, page 52 is the infamous... Uh, talk show photo or illustration of uh, Dr. Quinn looking nothing like Filton Mackay, talking to Octel, the old Silorian, who has one hand out as if he's smoking a cigarette and sitting, uh, leaning to the right in his chair. Episode 3 begins on page 61, and I marked that off in ink as well. There's some pretty neat uh, tricks with the font. There's a letter from the local constable to uh, Major Baker after the death of uh, Roberts on page 68, which actually has a facsimile of the constable's signature. Major Barker held the letter first one way and then another to try to read the signature, but it was just a set of three squiggles and could have meant anything. There are more illustrations throughout the book. I have episode 4 written in black ink on page 82 at the beginning of chapter 13. The episode 4 cliffhanger occurs in the middle of the page, page 105. In fact, it occurs in the middle of a sentence. Intense pain raced through his arms and legs. That's the doctor. He was just losing consciousness. I then drew a black slash mark and wrote episode 5 underneath. When he heard Octel's voice, stop. That's a pretty lame cliffhanger resolution, so you can see why Hulk decides to bury it in mid-sentence. The episode 5 cliffhanger occurs in the middle of page 132. He's dead, said the brigadier, then straightened up. On TV, the doctor added yes to the first one, but that is not preserved for the novelization. I had to write episode 6 in microprint in between the brigadier's line and the next sentence, and that's page 132. There, of course, is not too much book left after that, because Hulk crams episodes 6 and 7 into a short space. Uh, Episode 7, the episode 6 cliffhanger is in the middle of page 144, and there's not a whole lot of space, so I had to write episode 7 practically against the margin in very shaky handwriting. And the book concludes on page 158, which is not numbered. Since the book starts on page 7, that means it's a 152-page book. The last page, um, what will be 159, is a partial list of novelizations from Doctor Who and the Daleks all the way through Doctor Who and the Green Death. Uh, They didn't start with the A page, and they didn't include all the pages. They just used the second page of their catalog, going from letters D through G. And then on the back page is an ad for Starbucks. Uh, And of course, in the U.S., I never, ever sent away for anything from Starbucks, not knowing how to do overseas mail when I was 11 years old. Uh, 
this book is a tribute to Chris Achilles with the illustrations on the front cover, and he is really going to be missed. And now the bonus portion of the episode. I am thrilled and pleased to introduce my very first guest. Who's got the power, the power to read? Who looks into books for the answers we need? And I am thrilled now to be joined by an old friend of mine and one of the most prolific Doctor Who nonfiction writers there ever was, Stacy Smith question mark. Stacy, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be your first guest. If I were to list your entire bibliography, it would be longer than the length of a typical episode. So in about 30 seconds, what are some of the highlights of your Doctor Who nonfiction writing career? Ah, well, I'm uh, one of the co-writers of the Who is the Doctor series with Graham Burke. Uh, I have written Doctor Who comedy, like look at the size of that thing. I am the editor of the ATV series Outside In, which looks at not just Doctor Who, but other science fiction. Um, and there's various other, you know, short pieces I write all over the place. And that's always fun. And I have been, I think I was in the first eight Outside In volumes before my streak ended. Uh, so the fact that you are uh, my editor, if you're questioning whether or not nepotism is the reason you're my first guest, you'd be exactly right. <laughs> Amazing. Nepotism makes the world go round. <laughs> uh, but I will say that my pilgrimage is just about to reach the new series. I start Rose tonight. So your book and Graham's books on uh, the new series are right by me. I'll be reading your entry after I finish each episode. Oh, Fantastic. Because you guys have some pretty phenomenal takes, as I recall, on the new series. So I'm looking forward not only to starting the new series after 13 months on the classic series and three awful weeks in the wilderness years, but getting your book to be my guide through the new series will be equally exciting. Yes, you, you, you should get outside in too and, and look at the comedy takes. <laughs> uh, one of which is mine for uh, A Town Called Mercy, for those of you who want to buy outside in covers of the new series. So, uh, Stacy, which novelization are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, uh, which and is, of course, not the title of a Doctor Who televised story, but it's uh, one of the changed titles. Uh, this is Doctor Who and the Silurians. And, and it's, it's such a missed opportunity because it's the only Doctor Who story that has Doctor Who and the on the screen. And like, you're like, wait, they didn't make the novelization with that title? Like, oh, what a missed opportunity. <laughs> It could have been Doctor Who and the Doctor Who and the Silurians. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Taking a step back more globally, how did you first get into the novelizations? Yeah, the novelizations were kind of like in bookstores and so on. I remember when I was very young, being my grandmother took me to a bookstore or something, and I found a bunch, and I just sat on the floor reading them and just being like, oh my God, we weren't allowed to buy them or anything, but I just read them. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm looking at this one. I'm looking at this one. I was like, oh my God, there's Doctor Who in all these pages. And yeah, so I mean, Doctor Who was being shown on TV nightly well, where I grew up, um, but the idea that there were books about it and also books about stories that, you know, you could just go and visit at any time you wanted rather than be at the mercy of a television schedule was just amazing. Um, and, uh, but actually it was very, it was quite popular when I was in primary school, a bunch of my friends had Doctor Who books and so on. I think I, I borrowed one from my cousin at one point and then, you know, like eventually I was given some money and allowed to buy a couple of my own. I, I think one of my first was Destiny of the Daleks. I remember reading that while I was homesick from school and, you know, just, just devouring these books, which were such great books for, for a kid. It's funny that you mentioned Destiny of the Daleks because 
my very first novelizations purchase, I got three books on the same day, Invasion of Time, Doctor Who and the Cybermen, and Destiny of the Daleks. So that's one of my big three. That's one of the ones that got me into this whole uh, passion. So what was your collecting like? I mean, you were obviously seeing them at the library or at primary school, but when did you start getting your own copies? Yeah, they they trickle in here and there, sort of, you know, birthdays and Christmas, you could get like, you know, a book <laughs> and you know it was a very slow process and, and you know my, my birthday's in late October so I would get you know one in October one in December and then that's it and you'd just be like oh god I gotta wait till next October now to get another book and it was, it was just such a slow slow process and I think my my parents were not really into it so they didn't like buying them for me so my, my grandmother would buy them I mean probably it was my mother really buying them but anyway that was always a gift from my grandma and and so you know, but I only got one at a time. Like it was just, it was just very slow. Um, and then as, as I became more of a kind of rabid Doctor Who fan, I remember um, some friends gave me some, like I, you know, had a friend at school and he's like, oh, I don't want these books. Do you want them? I was like, absolutely I do. And it was, you know, Planet of Evil and Seeds of Doom. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And, and I, I, I think I borrowed Doctor Who and the exciting adventure with the Daleks um, off my cousin. Um, and then I mean, he wouldn't let me keep it. I was very, I was very offended by that. I was like, you want it back or what? And he's like, no, it's mine. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then someone else at school gave me a copy of it because he didn't want it. So it was, you know, like I got pretty lucky in that way. But then around like 87, eight, more 88, um, when I was in grade 10, um, I suddenly got into collecting and I found a, a used bookstore um, that would have them quite cheap. And so, and also I was working a summer job as well. I remember my summer job, it paid $2.50 an hour. And that was not my rate. My rate was one Doctor Who book per hour. And I would sit there going like, okay, I worked another hour in this really boring office job and I earned another Doctor Who book. And that was just completely my metric. And, and so I was sort of like, right, this is the only reason I'm here in this horrible job is to buy Doctor Who books. I was trying to figure out if you were getting only two books a year for birthdays and Christmas, you would have to be, I guess, uh, 79 years old by the time you got the entire set. I moisturize. <laughs> <laughs> so um in terms of the book that we are talking about today doctor who and uh, the cave monsters uh, one of the reasons why i'm excited to have you on for this particular book is you literally wrote the book on uh, the parent tv story doctor who and the silorians that was doctor who i believe black archive number 39 that's correct and you and I talked about that on my other show, the Trap Wood podcast, earlier this year. So if you go back and listen to that episode, it's you and I talking for about 90 minutes about uh, the TV series itself. Now, novelization, obviously, is quite a different creature. Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, what do you think uh, the novelization adds that we didn't get on the TV serial? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I've... I first read this novelization back in back in 88 and I remember it was it was once I started turning my my mind to like really collecting them and and it was one of a, a big hole of books that I got all at once and and I was going away with my family and so uh they, they basically they said you can't bring your, your book and so I was trying to finish this book frantically the night before we went away and I just sat there in my beanbag just reading 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 I've got to finish this thing and it, and it was amazing um and I had not read it since then um until till this past week 
and I had the same feeling. I just read that thing in one go. I was like, this is so gripping. Um, so to me, it's really a novel. Um, I think a lot of the later novelizations were, you know, Terrence Dix writing down the script and just sort of adding he said, she said. Um, but this one really feels like a complete novel. I mean, the cliffhangers are often just, you know, merged into the, you know, in the middle of a paragraph or something um, because it's not really about the cliffhangers. It's about this this story that's happening. And sort of, I mean, Doctor Who and the Saloons is such an epic story um, and it has is such a grand sweep of things happening. And so the novelization really kind of follows that sweep. Um, and yet it's doing it in 150 pages, which is quite impressive. Um, so I think that it, it has this beautiful flow to it. And at the same time, it changes quite a few things. And there's, there's quite a lot, I and mean, there's a couple of neat additions, but there's a couple of things that are completely moved around. Um, and so, you know, I feel like it's, it's a chance for Malcolm Hulk to kind of, you know, add layers to his story. Um, there's, there's completely new takes on characters because of, you know, like hearing their, their backstories and so on um, that give you such a great, in, you know, insight into, into who these people are and so on. Um, the, the TV story didn't necessarily need, but it's really nice having that extra layer in the novelization. One of the things that wowed me about the novelization, uh, or as you say, more of a proper novel, it doesn't just do a road transcript of the camera scripts, which would have been the easiest thing in the world to do. At the time that Hulk wrote this, it's probably mid to late 1973. The TV series is three or four years in the past. He's already produced several other TV serials, so the book likely wasn't that fresh in his mind. Easiest thing to do is take that camera script, lay it flat on the table, and just type... Uh, comma, the doctor added with a smile. Instead, what he does is he almost makes each individual chapter a self-contained short story. So I think if you look at, uh, it was either episode two or episode three on TV, in the novelization, it's entirely transformed into a three-chapter segment, and each chapter is narrated from the point of view of a different antagonist, like one of the Silurians or Dr. Quinn, or I think Miss Dawson, who has this incredible chapter talking about, you know, she dreads the moment when people stop asking, why did you, why aren't you married? And then they start asking, why didn't you get married in the past tense? Yeah, I, I'd forgotten about that. I, I read that line last week and I went, oh, that's where that's from. That's been in my head for, for decades. And and I, I thought it was from some literary novel, actually. And I was just like, oh, that seems like one of those fundamental truths that you read about and just think like, oh, yes, wow, how profound. And I was like, that's in this book. Holy. <laughs> yeah. So looking at the book as a collection, an, an interconnection of short stories, which of the chapters is your favorite? Which do you think is the most powerful? Oh, yeah. I think I think some of the opening chapters are, are really amazing. Um I mean, <laughs> when you hit the word Silurians, it only occurs once in the book, and it's a it's a code word to get into the into the base. And you're like, wow, that is that is so neat. Um, uh, but actually, I mean, I, I really like what what Hulk does with um, Major Major Barker, as he's in the book rather than Major Baker. Changes the name slightly, but but he gives him such shading um, that. You know, I think there's a point where the doctor sort of says, like, you know, like, oh, he's a very brave man. Like, he's a fool, but he's a brave man. And it gives him the sympathy that that I think is pretty absent from the TV show, where he's just kind of, you know, he's just too aggressive in the TV show. Whereas here he's, you know, like, he, he's, he's a vulnerable person who's making decisions for, you know, what he sees as all the right reasons, even if we know they're wrong. Um, and even though you disagree with him, you're like, yeah, actually, I, I, I really feel like this guy is... is you know, someone I can relate to, which is not how I ever feel about Major Baker in the TV show. And at the same time, Barker in the book is almost a complete fascist. He literally kills one of the minor characters. 
he has this epic rant about how it's the communists trying to bring down the base because Britain is going to be made great again. I think he literally uses that expression. Uh, it's amazing how Hulk manages to take this figure who is the polar opposite of everything that the real Malcolm Hulk would have believed, and yet makes him sympathetic and has the doctor say nice things about him, even though he literally kills a character during the book. So obviously on TV, Major Baker is a little more sane and a little less politically deranged and meets the exact same unfortunate end. But I think you're right in the book. There's a real pathos to the character as misguided as he is. Hulk really gets you into his head. What other characters do you think come off better in the book versus uh, how they fared on TV or perhaps vice versa, a character who lost something in translation to the printed page? Yeah, I actually found Quinn lost something. I, I watching watching the show for the Black Archive and really delving into it, I was really taken with Quinn. I, I feel Quinn is a fascinating character and, and in many ways is the hero of the story, at least the first half. Um, and I think that, you know, there's sort of this, this misguided aspect to him, of course, um, but he's really trying and then it, it feels like he makes like a mistake and then he gets killed for it. But in the book, he's trying to constantly just, you know, He's always boasting about how he's going to kill the Salarians and so on when, when you know, he gets his way and so on. He feels, he feels more, more two-dimensional to me in the book than he did on the TV. Um, and perhaps that's partly because of Fulton McCabe just being an amazing actor as well, um, who's perhaps you know, adding, adding shades as well that just make Quinn much more, more likable. Um, but yeah, I was, I was kind of a bit disappointed um, encountering Quinn. Um, on the flip side, Miss Dawson, of course, is much richer um, and, and also has an ending in the book, which, which she doesn't have in the TV show. She just vanishes. Um, so yeah, and uh, I mean, I think also, you know, the, the research base is is alive in a different way. Um, uh, you know, you sort of, the technicians don't feel like they're just there for plot reasons. They, they feel like they're there because this is a working base and and so on. Um, and it's sometimes they just have a little line or two, a little shading here and there, but it's it, it feels enough to kind of populate the book um, with what feels like people rather than just, you know, just, just these caricatures. Yeah, Ms. Dawson on TV, I think the last we hear from her is she's contracted the Silurian virus, and we never find out if she lives or dies. Yeah, which it's, is kind it's, of... such, it's such a thing that's left hanging, and you, you sort of feel like either either kill her and make that a, a piece of the tragedy, or bring her bring her in at the end or do something and it, it, you know and I, and I feel like there's a couple of spots where you could have actually just put her in instead of somebody else, um, and they just don't do that and and that that's that's really too bad. And in the, in the chapter where Dr. Quinn is killed off, there is this remarkable habit that Hulk has of giving sardonic chapter titles in his novelizations to characters who are about to be killed off. So in The Sea Devils, which I'll get to here in a couple of months, there's Visitors for Governor Trenchard, which, of course, uh, that's his last encounter ever. And in this book, I believe the exit for Dr. Quinn is the chapter titled Goodbye, Dr. Quinn, which also <laughs> <laughs> goodbye to the character. Yes. But there's a minor character at the, um, throughout the book, I think Miss Travis, who starts off serving coffee to the visiting member of parliament. And at the end of the book, she ends up having this really major role where she is the one who literally defuses the base's nuclear reactor, which doesn't happen on TV. So Hulk manages to bring this... It was a male character on TV who maybe had one or two lines, and he brings her into the book, changes the gender and gives her a pretty important role. So how do you think Hulk handles the gender politics in this book? I want to talk about Liz Shaw in a moment, but mm. we've already talked about uh, Miss Dawson and Miss Travis. 
how do you think the gender politics work in this book versus how they generally fare during the Pertwee era as a whole? Yeah, I, th- I think they work better in this book than they, they do in the Pertwee era. Um, it's perhaps not the highest bar to clear, but <laughs> um, <laughs> and yes, you know, I mean, companions aside, yeah, we, we didn't have a whole lot of supporting female characters who had much of a character. Um, whereas I find in this book, the, yes, I mean, Miss Travis is, is quite a, quite an amazing read. You it's sort of like, wait, who is, who is this person? Like, what, she's just popping up again and again. And, you know, reminds me a little bit of like, you know, the nurse in the pirate planet where it's this, you know, random minor character at the beginning and it becomes really important by the end. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, and I think that, um, yeah, Ms. Ms. Dawson as well, like, you know, she's, she's quite layered and quite, you know, like, like even the, I mean, I guess there's some fundamental changes you're not going to make. Like she's still Miss Dawson, not Dr. Dawson or something. Um, but she's given this whole kind of like, you know, research background and stuff like that. And, and so, you know, she was just sort of on TV, sort of Quinn's assistant kind of thing, but she's clearly like a person in her own right in the book. So then let's talk about Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. It's established in Spearhead from Space. I think that she has seven doctorates and she's as qualified as the doctor. In The Cave Monsters, I got the sense that Hulk was sort of underselling her and not making use of her scientific credentials and was taking a lot of the discoveries or observations that she got to make on television and transfer them over to the doctor so that in the book she's almost more of a traditional doctor what is that doctor what is that explain what's going on please Mm. uh kind of role do you think that liz could have been done better in the book or do you believe it's a more faithful or accurate portrayal of how we got her on screen yeah i I think it could have been done better uh i did find that the conclusion to the um uh the formula for the plague you know where where, you know the doctor's been taken away by the salarians and then you know liz has to kind of like step up i mean that's her really big moment in this story and instead what she does here is she's like oh let me try and remember which piece of paper he last wrote on and then she does and you're like, that's not really using her skills <laughs> that much. <laughs> and, and so it's basically like, let me just find the doctor's paper. That's that's about it. Um, whereas I feel like on the story, she was much more, you know, involved in actually, you know, doing science and so on. And being like, okay, well, the doctor's not here. I have to step up. Um, and so that that isn't really what happens here. And that that's that's a that's a shame, I think. Right. And I don't believe we even get a chapter from her. POV, whereas in the next Hulk book, uh, Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, I think Joe Grant gets uh, a little more space to breathe. So maybe that's a lesson that Hulk would learn going forward. And speaking of Liz being a scientist, did Hulk do anything in Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters to improve on the, uh, shall we say, sometimes questionable science of the TV episode? Uh, so I would say absolutely yes. I would say the thing that that is most obvious is the fact that like he doesn't call them Silurians ever. Um, so, so you know, I mean, he he obviously knew that by the time he got to the Sea Devils and and tried to re-explain, but he he doesn't call them Eocenes either. Um, and and so you know, and he just calls them Earth reptiles essentially, which is which is the name they become known as in the new adventures later on. Um, and so, so I think that like there's an awareness there that yes, you know maybe there's been some missteps and and he can he can undo them. Uh, you know, the, the fact that Silurian is just a password is just incredible. <laughs> and what about the uh, geology of the book or the nuclear physics? Is this uh, an accurate portrayal of how science is done, or is this your standard old time sci-fi trope of taking a field you barely understand? 
and writing your version of it rather than making an effort to be accurate. Uh, well, I will say, as a, as a scientist myself, the really accurate thing that he captures is the politics and the grant-mongering and the <laughs> appealing to like the minister and so on in order to get the science done. Um, that, I can absolutely confirm, is the way it often happens because it's like, yeah, sure, we can do all the science we want, but we need money, <laughs> we need equipment, <laughs> we need time, and, and those things are in short supply. Um, so, yes, it's a lot of like you know begging for stuff. So that one, I will say, is, is entirely accurate. Unfortunately so. And um, we talked about this a little bit in reference to Major Barker, but you and I are living here in a very specific 20th century authoritarian moment where democracies are perhaps on the wane and uh, certainly we're having a lot of uh, issues here in the States and looking at some of the news coming out of Australia, which is where I believe you are at this exact second, there's some perhaps not so great stuff going on. Um, how do the politics of the book look in light of what's going on here in the 21st century? Because in the book, you have a character say, make Britain great again, which uh, almost became Donald Trump's tagline in 2016, swap out Britain for America. And then you've got Major Barker's misguided nationalism, and then, of course, you have this odd moment in the book where the doctor tells the old Silurian that all mankind is treated as equal, which even in 1973 or 1974, Hulk must have known that couldn't possibly be true. So maybe he's reaching for some Gene Roddenberry-style idealism there. But talk a little bit about the politics of the book in that light, and are there any moments reading it now where you kind of go, ooh, that just walked over my grave? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the make, make Britain Great Again line is, is of course, pretty, <laughs> pretty stark when you see it in, in the 21st century. Um, but, but I think, on the other hand, it's a good reminder that, that, you know, we always think we're living in exceptional times, but that's true of every times. And, and uh, you know, I mean, in the 1970s, as you know, it seemed like, you know, energy is running out and, you know, oil is running out and so on. Um, and you're not that distant from World War II. And, you know, it's sort of like there's a lot of people who are pretty traumatized and so on. And, it, you know, you, there's Cold War stuff and, you know, there's sort of all those things going on would have been incredibly stressful to everyone as well. Um, and so I think that, you know, yes, 50 years have passed. On the other hand, it feels like no time has passed because history history rhymes. And, it, it, you know, these cycles go around again and the nouns change, but the, the broad things still stay the same. And, and you know, yeah, I, I can completely imagine that, like, yes, Major Barker today would be like, you know, he might not say communist, but he might say, you know, who knows what boogeyman de jour, but there's going to be a boogeyman all the time. And so... You know, I, I think that, that this story is a really good one about like what frightened people will do um, when pushed into a corner. And so, I mean, that's one of the things that to me, like, you know, infectious disease pandemics are, are all about. And of course, there's a giant pandemic in this book. Um, and you, you push people and you make them afraid and they will act kind of often with, you know, these kind of knee-jerk reactions um, and take the path of least resistance. And that's often the not the, the path you would like to take, um, but it's the path you end up taking. And I think that's where, to me, that this story really succeeds because it's a really honest depiction of people trying really hard to kind of be better than, than they actually are and, and absolutely failing at it. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, the humans try to be better, the Sullivans try to be better, and, and, and none of them do. And, and so I think that, you know, the, the politics there are just kind of the, the vessel for which this stuff falls into. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's fascinating, but I think also it's, it's, it speaks fundamentally to, to human nature. Um, 
because because that's I mean that's where Hulk is so brilliant. I think that you know, like you said earlier, um, you know, he's taking someone like Major Barker, who was it was the antithesis of of what Hulk would 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 have been, and you know, Hulk was a you know paid up communist, <laughs> um, and yet he's giving the guy like sympathy. He's not on a soapbox here. And it must have been so tempting, right? Can, can you imagine being Malcolm Hulk and being like, oh, I'll take this character who's basically, you know, like essentially a villain um, and just, you know, make him a ranting loony. And of course you could, but then you lose you lose audience identification. And I think actually it, it, it weakens your point because then they just become this straw man. And I think that's where Hulk the writer is, is such a genius because he can really get into the heads of characters and, and make them something that's, that's truly relatable and, and even, even as you disagree, because that's true of everyone. Like I'm sure that, you know, the, the fascists in the street today, they have their own reasons that they may be misguided and they may, you know, like be, you know, have been fed a diet of lies and so on, but they come to their conclusions through a rational process and they think they're right and they, they really believe this stuff. And so it's really hard to counteract people who believe that they're right. Um, you can't just sort of give them an alternative fact and hope for the best. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, understanding people, even as you disagree with them, at the end of the day is actually probably key to actually like dealing with these problems. Yeah, it's funny that as you say that, you're almost quoting word for word from a particular passage in a later Hulk book, Doctor Who and the Dinosaur Invasion, when Sarah Jane is trapped on the spaceship with the radical left eco-do-gooders, and she remembers advice that she was given about beware of people who know that they are right. (laughs) Oh, I'd forgotten about that, but yes, that's very, very apt. <laughs> well, I think I know which book I'm bringing you back for for your uh, next appearance on the I, show. I, I think that's going to have to be done. Yes, I, I mean, I, like, yes, to get ahead of ourselves a little bit. I mean, that that to me is another part of the genius of Hulk, is because you know he he flipped the script in that one, and, and so you know he he makes the left wing like you know the the misguided kind of bad guys, and you're kind of like, oh wow, like you know, like, and I feel like. I think I'm guilty of this sometimes myself in my writing. I'm sort of like, you know, I will sometimes lean into my politics and be like, no, but I'm going to like, you know, show the world like why I'm right and so on. And and it's like, yes. And what you do is you lose your audience with that. You you have to actually like get get into like, you know, what makes people tick um, because that's that's the way to reach people. And I'm going a little bit off script here, but I just finished the McCoy era, you know, seasons 25, 26 in my Twitter rewatch probably not even a month ago as we sit here and record this in early December. But one of the things that bothers me the most about seasons 25 and 26, and it definitely affected my enjoyment as I was watching those for the first time in the late eighties when I was a teenager. But it seems to me that a lot of what's happening in seasons 25 and 26 is you have the individual episode authors are just settling scores with character types. They don't like you get a lot of one-dimensional cartoonish bad guys and they are killed off without any shot of redemption. And we see this again and again, especially throughout, you know, the run of stories from happiness patrol up through survival. And what I love about Hulk is that he doesn't do that. He certainly has a lot of exaggerated personalities. You can go through a long stretch of life without ever meeting anybody like, like major Barker. But he makes an effort to understand the other person and give them a little bit of sympathy, even if they end up getting killed off in increasingly horrific ways. So that, I think, is a reflection on the, the Pertwee era, um, or at least the Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks portion of it in, in general. But uh, segueing from that to the third Doctor, 
uh, we've talked in the past that you've been critical of the Third Doctor's TV persona. Uh, what, what I wanted to ask you is you're reading this book for the first time in about 33 years. Did the portrayal of the Doctor in the book do anything to make you like him more or less? Yeah, I, I actually, it's a very good point. I think I did like the Third Doctor more reading the book than I did on screen. Um, yeah, and I definitely, I definitely struggle with the Third Doctor, even though he's my first Doctor, um, and I love almost everything about his era. I love the, you know, the unit setup. I love the family aspect of that. I love the trapped on Earth part. I, I love the Master. I, I love almost everything. The companions are great. The Doctor is really difficult for me, um, and I think part of it was actually the the what Hulk. Hulk sort of gives the brigadier all these these great lines about like oh oh doctor you know and he's sort of like you know in his internal processing he's like oh yes well of course the doctor loves to be right and I just like to kind of like indulge him in that and and you know you're like of course that's true of course that's how the brigadier approaches the doctor but it is really nice to just have that written down whereas on screen it's sort of you know he's got this Nicholas Courtney unflappableness um, and he's just kind of like he's just there for it um, but I feel like in the book you actually had more insight into this and and so I, I really actually enjoyed that and it, it softened the doctor too actually just by having the, the brigadier be kind of so indulgent and i think at the end of the day doctor in in, in ways is, is actually a bit more heroic um which you know perhaps the detriment of Liz Shaw, but but he nevertheless is um and and i mean like i i struggled a lot with this the tv version of this story and the doctor's role in it because he, he makes things worse all the time like you know if he just kind of been more patient with quinn and listened to him quinn would have told him everything and he just kind of bullies the man and and you know it essentially gets him killed and then you know story would have been over if he'd just been kinder um you know would have been over about three episodes earlier and there would have been no pandemic and stuff and there probably would have been a, a situation that would sort out and on the other hand when everyone sees a silurian they try and shoot at it or they try and like you know declare war on it and so on and the doctor offers it his hand and so that to me is an amazing moment the doctor is like you know wow you're a silurian like let me hold up my hand to you and of course, that moment is not explicitly in the book, but but that kind of thing is there all throughout. Right? The Doctor is curious, and he he you know he wants to reach out, and he wants to make contact, and he wants to kind of you know like like build peace. And and that to me is is the essence of what Doctor Who is. So this is this is someone who is trying to make the world better, um, and that's what I've always strived to do. And I feel like I you know we can certainly use more of that. The end of the Silurians on TV is pretty stark because it's one of the few times in the classic series where the Doctor. Well, we'll just call it what it is. He loses. He does. In the Massacre, he loses. That's pretty much the only time in the Hartnell era. In the War Games, he loses, which is pretty much the only time in the uh, Troughton era. In the Silurians, he doesn't get what he wants. He wants to go back and make peace with the Silurians, and he's, well, he fails. How does Hulk handle this in the book? Because you have this two-page chapter closing out the book called The Lie which is staged a little bit differently from the TV version. Mm. How did that strike you as being different? And again, would you consider that better or worse or about the same as what we saw on television? Yeah, I, I actually spent a long time debating with my editor for the Black Archive that I wrote on this story about the ending. Um, and, and I think there's kind of like a sense that like the ending of the TV story is what's in the novelization, right? It, like in the novelization, they seal the caves and then they sort of say, well, they're sealed in so much, we'll never get to them. Um, but they're sealed in. Whereas in the TV story, it's, it's murder. Like the doctor explicitly says, but that's murder. Um, and the, the implication is absolutely that the brigadier has murdered all the Silurians. And, and, you know, I, I actually don't think there's any doubt about this when you watch the show, but of course, later on they come back and, you know, like, 
uh, I mean, I think there's a line in the Seedles that actually the master describes what's happening. And he sort of says like, you know, like, you know, you got everyone killed there too. Uh, and there's, there's other supporting evidence for it. But but in the long history of Doctor Who, yeah, that wasn't really murder. You know, it wasn't genocide. There are Silurians and so on. Um, but I think for this story, it was absolutely meant to be the Brigadier murders an entire race. And that's an incredibly bold ending. Um, and there's a very brief acknowledgement of it in the Ambassadors of Death. And then they kind of go back to business as usual. Um, in novelizations, this is even harder to do because you know these novelizations were published out of order. And in fact, Ambassadors was the last Pertwee novel. So that was many, many years later. Um, I think even you know, more than a decade later. So you can't rely on the next book you know, doing this. And of course, the next book in sequence is not, you know, a John Pertwee book. So, you know, it's kind of like, it's 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 not possible to do it that way and have that bold ending, I suppose. Um, I wish they'd kept it though, because I think that that bold ending of the TV show was incredibly brave and really powerful. Um, less less helpful for an ongoing show but but for what it is is, is really amazing um and in the book it's 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 softened and it's still it's still a bad thing um but it's it's much more closure i think in in terms of like the story that's been going on um and you know then they kind of like all right well you know i guess that's done and you know end of story so looking at the book as a whole, what was your favorite uh, passage or bit of dialogue or authorial observation? Uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, mostly it's stuff we talked about that I think, you know, the, the, the past of being Silurians, the, the, the like insights into Major Barker, uh, the, the line about Ms. Dawson, like, you know, never having married, um, those little bits here and there are really sweet, actually, to, just to kind of like stumble upon. I mean, the fact there's a diagram at the beginning of the story that shows you the layout of the, the you know, Psychotron um, and also the caves and, and so on is, is, is really helpful. Um, and I was sort of thinking like, does it really need this? I was like, I don't know if it needs it, um, but wow, is it useful to have? And I, I found myself looking back to that a few times, even though I feel like I know that layout because I watched that story so many times. Um, and yeah, that was that was also really nice. Um, so having internal illustrations, you know, was, was such a cute thing. Whereas some of the later illustrations are just like, oh yeah, somebody punches somebody in the face and that's a, an action piece or whatever. But but you know, that one was was a really nice piece. Um, but I think I think what I really took away from it though was not so much the individual pieces, but the the way that story flowed as a whole. Um, um, and the way that Hulk clearly went went back to square one and kind of rewrote this story from the ground up um, and and made it into a into a novel, not a TV show um, or just a TV show that was in print, um, as many novelizations later became. Um, that was really amazing to me. And to that, I would add two moments: the moment where the Doctor realizes that Doctor Quinn is the son of a much more famous scientist, and he realizes that Quinn is living frustrated in his old man's shadows, which doesn't excuse Dr. Quinn's outright villainous behavior. But again, what I brought up earlier about the McCoy era, where it's one-dimensional characters that the writer doesn't like, who he's getting a chance to kill off vicariously, at least here we understand how exactly Dr. Quinn became a villain. Mm -hmm. And the other part that I really loved, when I was a kid, this blew me away. I would have been about 12, I guess, when I read this for the first time. It's the whole prologue where the Silurians are talking to each other on the eve of the end. And they're talking about mm -hmm. the mammals in the field and the mammals' disgusting habits. And, you know, those are uh, apes and those will eventually become us. It was a really interesting way of looking at uh, humanity from, from a different lens. And uh, the way Hulk just effortlessly manages to write for these alien species and give them opinions and philosophies and attitudes that are so completely different to our own. It's just, it's an incredibly rewarding book and I'm thrilled to be able to talk about it with you. 
In fact, the, the, the closing line of that chapter is just astonishing, right? You know, Okdel goes in to the caves and, it's, you know, he looks at the setting sun and then he, he walks inside and then said he wouldn't see the sun again for like a million years. And you're just like, oh, wow, that is an incredible passage of time. It just is a beautiful moment to, to, to look at. This book came out the exact same month as Terence Dix's first book, which is Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion, which is about the same length, about 150 pages, and it has some of Dix's best prose ever. Oh, to be alive in January 1974 and to get both of these books at the same time must have been literary nirvana. Of course, I was only three months old and living in the wrong country, so I had to wait a long time to get the pleasure. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I, I mean, I, I can see why the novelizations were so so widespread and such such big sellers across the world. And, and you know, they, they were just kind of very, I mean, I, I just loved going into bookstores and just looking for Doctor Who novels all the time. And, and I feel like, you know, when they when they grew up later and became new adventures, they, they were wonderful and magical and so on, but they weren't everywhere the way that these novelizations were. And so to me, that was really, really amazing. And I think this is why, because they had such a good grounding. Um, and I think, you know, you repurpose the first three kind of like, you know, partner ones, um, and then you, you add in these beautiful ones, and it's off to such a strong start. And then, yes, it can devolve a bit into the 95-page Terence Dixers, but it doesn't matter in a sense because you've, you've, you've got that line working for what it is. And I'm going to argue when we get there in this podcast that Dixers' 95-page jobs are almost just as good as these in different ways, but he manages to use that economical word count to have so many hidden insights and jabs and uh, lashing out of the story if he doesn't like it. And it's amazing that he's able to do that in such a reduced word count compared to what we have here. But I guess one last point, and this I'm going to spring on you as an ambush because we didn't talk about it earlier, but do you remember the new adventure Blood Heat from Jim Mortimer? I loved that new adventure. I read that new adventure again and again, and and I I read it for a bookworm, which I wrote, which was the guide to new adventures, um, and found it to be one of the standout books of the line. I'd, I'd really like, you know, I'd liked it already, but I wow, I loved it when I when I hit it. What impressed me most about Bloodheat is it's a sequel to the Silurians, but it's not a sequel to the TV. It's a sequel to the novelization, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful literary trick. So Dr. Lawrence on TV becomes a virus truther, and he dies of the virus, which we're seeing time and time again here in the United States. Some outspoken media personality tells you the virus is a hoax, then they die of it. In... In the novelization, Lawrence becomes much more sympathetic, and he's killed off at the end trying to defend the cyclotron room against the Silurians. He doesn't die of the virus, and in Blood Heat, as I recall, we actually get Lawrence's corpse the way it was killed off in the book, not the way that it would have been killed off on on television. So that's one more change that I like in the book, which I think is an improvement over the TV serial. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I did, I did enjoy the ranting Lawrence in the, in the TV show. Uh, he's, he's entertaining, but, but yes, I agree. I think as, as actual person, I think that that's much more likely. I mean, I think you, you generally don't get to be, you know, director of, of a giant institute and stuff like that if you're going to like off the deep end quite so much. Um, so, uh, but yes, no, I mean, the, 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 the book I think is really the natural successor to the Malcolm Hulk style of sort of like you know very complex characters um, where everybody kind of has you know their agenda and then these agendas are you know there's there's not really these black and white ideas of like you know there's there's the good guys and the bad guys there there are overlapping moral issues that are coming up all the time and you get stuck in them and they're really hard to get out of and so that that's one thing i really loved about like you know both malcolm hulk stuff and then also his successors 
So, Stacy, where can uh, my listeners, well, at this early stage in the podcast, such as they are, where can my listeners find you on uh, the internet, and what else is coming out from you in terms of books in the near future? Yeah, I, I'm not really a, a huge social media fan, um, so so I'm not. I don't really have public kind of social media. Um, I would say what what you can find me is you can find me through my books, and so you know if you like this story, then then my black archive on Doctor and the Silurians, I would say is is probably one of the pieces I'm most proud of, and it's it's you know they're pretty short books, so you know in fact it's one of the few that my mother has actually read cover to cover, <laughs> and so where I talk <laughs> all about the the all the political issues that come up and all the ethical issues and so on, um, and you know lots about disease because that's my day job as well um and that was published in january 2020 like just before covid so you know it's 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 a little bit uh, <laughs> a little little bit precognition of of the pandemic uh, um but yes otherwise i have i have various books coming out i have more outside ins coming out very soon um uh, i have other other books from um obverse coming out um quite similar to the uh, black archive one but um talking about millennium um that should be out um in a couple of months um and all the sort of issues from the you know late 90s that, that were terrifying us uh, so yeah I, I feel like i veer back and forth a bit between very dark com you know stuff and then very and comedies as well because uh, bill evenson and i have a look at the size of that thing which is a doctor who comedy book um where we basically make fun of everything to do with doctor who and you know that that has been described as, as utterly hilarious so i'm very very proud of that one well, Millennium has a pandemic as well, so I guess uh, we know where your fictional wheelhouse, your non-fictional wheelhouse is. Yes, yes, I, I, I did sell myself a little bit as being like, well, since I'm a bona fide expert on pandemics, why don't I do the pandemic stuff? Um, and it's of course not my not the only thing that that I have, but um, yes, it is something I can definitely talk about um, to to some degree. Um, I, I should have a book about uh, the top ten diseases of all time coming out as well. And uh, what chapter is COVID? Uh, yes, it's it's basically edging into the number 10. It'll probably be taking the number 10 slot by the time the book comes out. Oh, or make it an 11 chapter book so that one chapter doesn't go to waste. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Stacy, thank you so much for joining us and looking forward to having you back on in the near future. Oh, I can't wait. Thanks very much. Special thanks to my special guest, Stacy Smith question mark, and thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found on Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and you can also find me on the Trap One podcast at Trap One underscore. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, DR Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, suggestions. Next time, we'll be discussing Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon with another special guest. Thank you for listening, and keep turning the pages. <laughs>